Amen. Right, let's go Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. And the reason for that is really simple. We believe that God uses his word to reveal himself to his people, to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance, to show us how to live, to show us the way of salvation. And we can go on and on and on and on and on about that. Uh, but we believe the Bible is important. We believe that God uses the Bible to do what he wants to do. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home and start reading it and and uh, at the very least, I'll call it a win. Uh, so we kicked off a, a new series, uh, a little short series, if you will, a few weeks back that we're calling the Already But Not Yet Kingdom. The artwork's up there on the screen. Uh, the, the theme behind all of this is, is really simple. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, uh, we're told that Jesus is going around to the little villages and synagogues and the place that he would have called home, the region that was his kind of home area, and he was healing people of diseases, and he was working miracles, and he was teaching authoritatively in, in all the synagogues and all these kinds of things. And it tells us in, at the end of chapter 4 that he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That these large crowds were gathering around him. They were all wanting to get a little piece of Jesus. They wanted to see him teach with authority. And they wanted to see him put the Pharisees in their place. And they wanted to see him uh, work a miracle or two. And, and everybody's trying to get a little piece of Jesus. And so Matthew chapter 5 tells us at the very beginning that Jesus sits down on a hillside and begins to teach this crowd of people. And that, that teaching, that big chunk of teaching, uh, is Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. We commonly refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has this crowd gathering around him, and he wants to give them something. And so he gives them what we know to be the longest singular block of teaching we get from Jesus in the Gospel accounts. There's other places where he teaches for an extended period of time, but this is the long one. And so a lot of commentators have come to refer to this little section of teaching. It's not all that long, but they've come to refer to this section of teaching as the King's Manifesto. In other words, if you want to get into the mind of Jesus, if you want to figure out how he works and how he thinks and how he operates, this is the first place that you need to look. So you all ready to look at it this morning? Good. Let's read um, Matthew chapter 5. Start with me in verse 38. We've looked at a lot of things already the last couple of weeks, but Jesus is still talking. There's no interruption here. He doesn't allow people to, to butt in, so it's truly sermon form. And in verse 38, he says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say. All last week, we, we looked at Jesus use that phrase over and over and over and over again. So what, what's that about? Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say. So Jesus is asserting his authority here. He's clarifying the law to reveal the sinful heart that all of our sinful actions flow out of, spring out of. And we saw this over and over again last week. Jesus isn't impressed with our white-knuckled efforts to, to steer our sin into some slightly less terrible action because he knows what's actually in our heart is what we came down to. 
That Jesus sees the real us and he sees the things that are in us that birth those actions and spring forth those actions. Jesus, he seems to believe that what a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. And that was our theme last week. And so while Jesus is certainly concerned with the physical manifestation of our sin, he seems to be far more concerned with the sinful heart that that action flows out of. It's not that he's not concerned with the external stuff. He just seems to speak and operate operate as if it's nothing more than a symptom of a much deeper problem. What a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. And so he says here, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what is that? Is that that phrase actually in the Bible? Yep. Exodus 21. You don't have to turn there. We'll turn there later. But Exodus 21, that phrase is taken from the Old Testament. Uh, Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. uh, and He receives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Uh, And a lot of people, because all they know of the story is what they learned in Sunday school growing up, they think he just goes down the hill and everything's... You know, goes from there. But no, he's actually up on the mountain, up on Sinai, for like the next 14 chapters. That's a lot of time. And during those several chapters, God spells out for him far more than just the Ten Commandments. He actually gives them what would be called the, the ceremonial law and the civil law. Right? So this becomes the penal code for this new nation of people. Like, think about it. You've got a nation of people. They are now out from under slavery, out from other the laws and the rules of another nation, and they've got to be a people unto themselves, right? And so God gives them a penal system that says, when this happens, do this, and when this happens, do that. And if you've ever read a law book, well, Leviticus ain't nothing on a law book. Like, we tend to think that Leviticus and uh, this little section of Exodus is kind of a tough read. Well, pick up a legal book once in a while. It's actually not so bad. God's laws are kind of streamlined, actually. So Moses, in Exodus 21, is up on the mountaintop. He's receiving the civil commands for God's people. In Exodus 21, 23, and 24, uh, while God is explaining the punishment for somebody who who has harmed a woman and her child, God says this, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound. Y'all wondering if I'm going to stop ever. Stripe for stripe. That's a whole lot of making things even, right? And and many people have pointed to places like this in the Old Testament and argued, well, that kind of makes God and his people sound awfully vindictive, doesn't it? I mean, do we have to do that? The problem, though, is that those people usually don't judge their own hearts by the same standard. Because the human heart never, ever only wants to get even. They want to do one worse. You follow me? We always want to do more than even. We want people to pay when they do wrong. That's what's buried deep down in us. We may not like to talk about it, but that's what we want. Someone does something wrong or maybe even just dumb. And what do we want? We want heads to roll, don't we? Doesn't even have to go to, to all-out physical violence, even though it sometimes does in our culture. What do we normally do? We get on Facebook or Twitter, call for people to get fired. We call for businesses to be boycotted. We want folks to go bankrupt. And even if we're not brave enough to call for those things ourselves, we 
use the digital currency of the social media world, likes and shares, to encourage the ones who do. Right? I mean, that's the world that we live in. We always, always, always want the offender to pay more than the one who is offended against. And if they don't, doesn't it seem unfair to us? And so in reality, a correct reading of Exodus 21 here is actually about restraining violence, not calling for it. A correct reading of Exodus 21 is is not about saying, you go get them back. No, it's about restraining that deep urge within us to do far more than going and getting them back. That's what God is doing there. It's a fair application of justice rather than the opportunity to make someone pay for what they did. Instead of us just flying off the handle like we're all prone to want to do. But Jesus here, in Matthew 5, well, he only uses that as the setup for what he really wants to talk about. The heart buried within it. Because what a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. So he says in verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So we we spent a lot of time last week fleshing out the reality that Jesus doesn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill every bit of it. And that's still 100% true here, right? That he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. It's also true that God gives very explicit commands in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that the reason he created the civil authorities, whether we're talking about governments or we're talking about the leaders of those governments, that the reason he created those civil authorities was so that they could restrain and punish evil through earthly means. That's what Romans 13 is all about, if you've ever read that. That the reason he gave those systems and those people to lead those systems was that so they could restrain and punish evil. So what's going on here? Because Jesus kind of seems like he's wanting us to be passive. Right? What's this whole turn the other cheek stuff? It's because Jesus isn't talking about earthly authorities right here. He's talking about you. Right? Are you one of the earthly authorities? Probably not. You might be, but you're probably not. He's talking about mine and your personal response to when we have been personally offended. See, the civil authorities, whether they're good civil authorities or bad civil authorities, the Bible teaches that they are commissioned and accountable to God for how they rule. And they are tasked with the sword, as Romans 13 tells us. But what about you and me? We haven't been given that task, have we? That's not our job. So what is our job? The message of the cross. The message of the cross is our job. It's not vengeance and retaliation. Those things are outside of our domain. But the message of God's grace is inside of our domain. And Jesus illustrates that here with four little different categories, I think, of offense. Dignity, security, liberty, and property. Do you ever thought through this? The four things he lists off kind of fit squarely into some, some categories of offense. Dignity security, liberty, and property. What's the first one he mentions? The slap on the cheek, right? But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, a right cheek, turn to him the other also. So what is this one? This is the dignity one, right? To be slapped is to be insulted. Because 
I, like, I don't know if you've ever really thought through this. If I wanted to physically harm you, I'm not coming at you with an open hand. Right? That's, that's, not, the best, that's not the most efficient way to do something. It's all about insult. And that's true in our culture, but it's especially true in the culture that Jesus is talking to right now. We're talking about a culture where you literally greet somebody by kissing them where? Yeah, and so the face and the interaction with the face is an incredibly important thing in this culture. That's why when Judas comes to Jesus in the garden and outs him by kissing him on the cheek, that's why that's such a massive deal. You're going to kiss me on the face? Really? Now? It wasn't just a little signal. He did it in the most underhanded, offensive way. To be slapped on the cheek is to be deeply deeply insulted, and even in our own culture, let alone theirs. And when you're deeply insulted, what's your knee-jerk reaction? You want to insult them worse, don't you? Like, isn't that what you really wanted? Like, don't you want them to, to get what's theirs? That's why some of you daydream about telling somebody else off. That's why, like, pretty much every teenage show right now geared towards teenagers and young adults, that's why all their characters are nothing but, like, Teenagers that like spend the whole episode talking down to people. It's just one long insult after the next. And the whole plot line is moved forward by that kind of stuff in these kinds of shows lately. Why? It's because there's something buried deep down in us that wants that to be us. We want to be the one who got the upper hand in that moment, don't we? And so we fantasize about it, we write stories around it, we do all of these things. The problem is, though, that's not how the king and his kingdom operates. Not even close. How do we see Jesus respond when he's insulted? Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Right? Anybody think that's because Jesus wasn't sharp enough in the moment to think of a witty snapback? Like, is that where we want to take that? Well, if Jesus was smarter... If Jesus was just a little quicker-witted, he would have had something to say. There, there, was a, there was an active choice on his part to do something different, wasn't there? There was something intentionally upside down about Jesus' kingdom here. But what's the next thing? Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the tunic is basically an undergarment. It's, held, it's worn next to the skin, and the cloak was uh, the outer garment. Right? And so in this culture, you got to think of it more than just a coat, though. It's like your everything. It's kind of like your shelter. If it's your blanket on a cold night. It's your protection from a severe storm if it's raining real bad. All right? The cloak is kind of this, this security blanket that you have in order to like survive in a pretty desolate place. In fact... Exodus 22, going back to the civil law that God is giving to Moses on Sinai. All right, he's still up there. And in, in Exodus 22, 26, it says this. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. And so built into the civil law, a millennia before Jesus is speaking here is the idea that, hey, listen, don't hold on to somebody's cloak for too long. They need it. That's important. And so the assumption here in what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is that, that you've been sued fairly, rightly sued, and you lost. 
So now what? It says, pay up. But he says here that you should pay up more than what's required of you. Even at personal risk to yourself. Why? <laughs> right? Like, don't you have some questions for Jesus after that? Why? Because it points other people to a kingdom where you've received far better than what you deserve. At the incredibly high cost of someone else. It's a gospel moment more than it is a security moment. You follow me? Because it points to a king who gave far, far, far more than what was required of him. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm sure that'll raise all kinds of questions for our Q&A cards this week, though. But Jesus, again, he, he doesn't invite criticism. He doesn't invite feedback. He just moves on to the next example. Look at 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him what? Two miles. So the people that Jesus is speaking to right now literally live in a culture where the Roman, a Roman soldier could make you carry their stuff for up to a mile. It's, we're talking codified law here. It's not just the culture they live in. It's in the law books. Why? Well, because that's how you... It's an easy way for the Roman Empire to remind the Jewish people that they were, in fact, occupied. I mean, we're talking about offended liberty here, right? I mean, it's just like British soldiers requiring that we quarter them during the Revolutionary War, if you're familiar with that time period. And those of you who have more libertarian political leanings, that's probably enough for you to run a don't tread on me flag up the pole. Like, like the idea that they could force you to carry their stuff for a mile? Are you kidding me? I told you last week that Jesus was intentionally angering all the different ideological groups of his culture and day. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the, the Essenes. How do you think the Zealots felt about this little statement? The Zealots were the ones who were always trying to overthrow Rome by force. They were causing little insurrections everywhere. I mean, there were the little cell groups that infiltrated and tried to overthrow. And Jesus has the audacity to say, hey, hey, hey. when they require you to go one mile, blow their minds by going two miles. Are you kidding me? But again, why? Because the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus seems to believe that when we go out of our way to serve others, even if those others are the bad guys, that everybody else gets a picture of who Jesus is. In other words, when you serve others in an otherworldly way, you get to play a role in showing those others the character of your otherworldly king. That's what he's saying. And Jesus is seen as glorious in that extra mile. It feels upside down, I know, but that Jesus fellow, he's pretty smart. Maybe he knows something we don't, right? But Jesus isn't done yet. We have one more, the offense of property. And so look at verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So if you've spent a lot of time in church, you know that this one can get derailed really, really quickly. Um, it's important to remember here that Jesus isn't talking to a culture that has a middle class at all. At all. And so ain't nobody here in first century Roman occupied Judea that's got disposable income. 
You, you are a, a, the people in power or you, the, you are the people being occupied. And, and so Jesus' audience right now, those who are sitting under his teaching as he's sitting on a hillside, those who are in Jesus' audience right now are living in a world where saying yes to helping others really does actually cost them something. It's going to sting. Helping others in Jesus' audience may actually mean that you don't eat that night. It may actually mean that you struggle to pay your taxes when the tax man comes. And what does he say in that moment? He says, he says, give freely and don't refuse them. Does that mean that every single request for help is something you ought to give? No, I don't think it is. Like, don't we all have stories of people who have come to us for help and you knew, you knew that helping them in that moment was going to make things worse? Right? You knew. Whether it's... Uh, whether it's enabling some bad thing or allowing them to continue and not growing. I mean, there's absolutely times when it is good, right, and loving towards that other individual to put your foot down and say no. And genuine love for that person is going to cause you to prayerfully wade through those waters. So what's the difference between that and what Jesus is saying here about not refusing people? Well, Jesus is talking about offense here, right? It's in... He's, he's walked through all these other things about when we're personally offended. He hasn't changed the subject. He's talking about when we are personally offended about something. And so when that selfish little voice wells up in you and says, Nah, man, you earned this. You heard that voice before? I've heard that voice before. When that voice wells up inside of you and says, How dare they ask? Don't they know how hard you work for this? Look what they would do with that. Jesus says that in that moment, that in that moment we ought to give freely. We ought to give open-handedly, never refusing when asked. Why? Because as a follower of Jesus, you've died to yourself. You've died to your wants, and you've died to your desires, and you've died to pursuing comfort and safety and pleasure on your own terms. And as a follower of Jesus, you now find every single one of those things in Jesus himself instead of your stuff. And so while money and stuff are never sinful in and of themselves, and while wise stewardship is just as Christ-like as open-handedness is, followers of Jesus can live joyfully and open-handedly, ready and eager to give away our stuff because our eyes are no longer focused on the temporary stuff. We have a better treasure in view. We're no longer focused on trinkets. We have eternal perspective. We see them, we, we use them, but we no longer treasure them the way we used to. And so we're set free to give away stuff in an upside down, otherworldly way. Let me speak as a shepherd, though, to the flip side of this reality. Because you don't preach through this text for very long before some people in a room decide start to get the idea. Well, that means that all I have to do is ask and I've got somebody cornered. So what you're doing in that moment is you're showing by your attitude and action that stuff is still way, way, way more important to you than Jesus. And it would actually be harmful to you 
to give you something in that moment. And so, I think Jesus would say, no, pass on that one. But when you're personally offended, well, that's the moment to live more open-handedly. But again, Jesus just moves on. He doesn't invite feedback from the crowd. and He keeps going. Look at 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be what? Perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have heard that it was said, but I say. So Jesus uses the same phrase for the umpteenth time. It's also the last time he's going to use it in the Sermon on the Mount, though. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I mean, doesn't that sound at least a little bit right? Like, don't we all kind of want the world to work that way? Surely it does, though, right? I mean, hate does sound like a little bit of a strong word, but it's, it's how the world works, right? You love the good guys, you hate the bad guys. You root for those wearing the white hats, you root against those wearing the black hats, right? You, you fight for the rebellion and fight against the evil empire. You love those who look like you, think like you, talk like you, dress like you, eat like you, whatever like you, and you just hate all those other weirdos who don't. I mean, isn't that kind of how the world works? If not, you've never spent much time on Twitter. That's kind of how the world works. Two really giant prob- problems with seeing the world that way, though. One is that's not the way that God's kingdom has ever worked. And I really do mean ever. Hold your place in Matthew 5. We'll come back to it. And flip with me to Exodus 23. I want you to see this for yourself. Exodus 23. Moses is still on the mountain. He's up on top of Sinai. God has given him the civil law, the law that's going to become the penal code for God's covenant people, the nation that's supposed to represent him and show off his glory to the nations. And in Exodus 23, verse 1, it says this, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. So don't join up with the crowd to take advantage of somebody else. Verse 3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. He's saying there that, hey, don't just rule for the poor man so you can pick on the the rich guy. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you, lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Verse 7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds a clear-sighted, uh, excuse me, blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. 
You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay, so 1,300 years before Jesus steps onto the scene and has a little sermon on the mount, God gives the explicit command to his covenant people that they are to love others. That they're to love others. And love here does not simply mean not doing the bad things. This is actively doing the good things. There's work in this. He says, seek the welfare and seek their their justice on their behalf. Not just those that look like them and talk like them and think like them and dress like them, but even to the foreigner and the one he puts here in the category of enemy. He even specifically names the one who hates you. But they, don't they, haven't they earned my hate back because they hated me first? No, rescue their donkey. And so despite whatever the rabbis might have been teaching when Jesus steps onto the scene in the first century, God's kingdom has never, ever, ever operated in a love your neighbor, hate your enemy kind of way. But there's a much larger problem with seeing the world that way. The second is a far more terrible logic problem because the idea of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy is also diametrically opposed to the character of God himself. Just completely opposite. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 tells us that because of our sin and because of the sinful bents of our hearts that we are, quote, enemies of God. That's the word that Romans 5.10 uses. Literally calls us God's enemy. Newsflash. You don't want God to love his neighbor and hate his enemy. Because you it. You, you don't want God to love those who were nice to him first. Because you are not. But the good news is also found in Romans 5.10 because it says literally, for if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Have you ever tried to boil the gospel down into just a real simple sentence? Like that's that's something that my personality tends to do with these massive concepts. And so like when it comes to the gospel, I, I, I think of ways, like how could we actually say it in just one short sentence? So here's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus came to effectually love his enemies. Like, you want the gospel in one sentence? That's it. Jesus came to effectually love his enemies. The the eternal Son of God put on flesh, dwelt among us, lived sinlessly on our behalf so that he could love us effectually. He died terribly on a cross as a substitute. He loved us effectually. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian during World War II. He's also the guy that the coffee shop downtown is named after. That's his claim to fame. No, no, he was, he was kind of this rising star in the theological world of Germany back in that day. But the thing he is easily most famous for is because he was arrested one time for trying to organize an assassination attempt against Hitler. Like, 
You want to aspire to things as a pastor? <laughs> and he was involved in an assassination attempt. Like that, that, It never fleshed itself out, obviously. They found out about it long before they ever did anything about it. And he was arrested. And so he spent the majority of the war in prison and in a concentration camp. And because of his education, because of his status as a public figure, he was afforded the opportunity to ride a lot. And, but ultimately, he was executed about a month before the war ended. But we have all of these writings from him during this time period of his imprisonment. And we, the Cost of Discipleship is probably his most famous book. And he's got letters that he wrote from prison that's called The Letters from Prison. Because again, Christians are really smart at naming things. Um, but he wrote all this stuff. And then one time he was commenting on this command to pray for those who persecute you. And he said this, This is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. Can I give you just a little practical thing this morning? I try to do that every once in a while. The next time you're sorting through your, your list of contacts and categorizing people as friend versus enemy, just hold them up for a second to Dietrich Bonhoeffer's enemies. See how they compare. Or even better yet, Jesus' enemies. And then once you've unmuddied the waters a little bit, pray for them. Pray earnestly for them. Why would you do that? That's not the way the world actually works. That seems upside down. Because the king is upside down. How did Jesus respond to his persecutors? Father, forgive them for they know not what they Forty-four. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That word may there, so that you may. That's in, uh, in the Greek, it's called the aorist tense or the perfect tense. It, it doesn't mean that something is being... Uh, Made complete, it means that something is already complete and is being revealed as fulfilled. All right? That's what that tense is in the Greek. So why does that matter? Uh, Jesus says that our status as belonging to the kingdom, as belonging to God, as sons of God or sons and daughters of God is revealed in the act of something. That we don't earn our salvation by loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us, but we show off our salvation and manifest it to the world, just put it on display for everyone to see by loving our enemy and praying for those who persecute us. In other words, we show off the reality of our reconciled relationship to God by our otherworldly love for others. We prove ourselves to be sons of God. And then Jesus illustrates this little children of God reality by saying that, that God sends sunshine and rain on both those who are righteous and those who very much are not. He calls them wicked. Why? Because that's what God does. And when we also love without qualification, we get to look a little bit more like our Father. He sends the rain even on those who don't deserve it. He sends the sunshine even on those who don't deserve it. 
Sidebar, you, you think anybody does deserve it? <laughs> anybody sitting back going, I really deserve that storm. I really deserve that rain for my crops. Yet God sends it anyways. And so when we love without qualification, we get to look a little bit more like our Father. 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? All right, so these little remarks from Jesus seem innocuous, but to the, to the, they're definitely the ones that's going to pick Jesus to fight. Right, if you understand the crowd he's standing in, sitting by, whatever you want to say, if you understand the audience Jesus is talking to, this is going to be the one that riles folks up. All right, so the crowd that Jesus is talking to right now, a Jewish crowd that at the very least is making attempts to be righteous. Right? I mean, they're, they're following a rabbi around, hoping to see a miracle and listening to his teaching. They're doing more than their neighbors are. So we're talking about a Jewish crowd that at least understands that their Jewish culture and the Messiah are important. And so they're wanting to at least put, some, put forth some effort. And to the crowd that Jesus is talking to, there are really two groups of people that would be really, really insulting to compare them to. Gentiles and tax collectors. So who are they? Well, the Gentiles are non-Jews. In case you don't have a church background, Jews categorize the world as two groups of people, Jews and non-Jews. They call them Gentiles. The Jews had God's promises, the Gentiles didn't. The Jews had God's law, the Gentiles didn't. The Jews had God's blessing and promises, the, Jews didn't ha- uh, the Gentiles didn't have any of that. God was concerned with the Jews. We shouldn't be concerned with the Gentiles because God's not concerned with the Gentiles, at least in their heads. And so to a faithful Jewish person, to be compared to a Gentile is not exactly a nice thing to say. But the second group was worse. He, he said tax collectors. So who are the tax collectors? The tax collectors were Jewish men who bought the right from Rome to collect taxes from their friends, family, and neighbors and give them to the Roman army that was currently oppressing them. They were traitors. They were self-serving and self-advancing men who turned their backs on their own people and took opportunity to make a buck. How is everybody feeling about the tax collectors? And Jesus says here, hey, if, if you only love those who loved you first, and you only serve those who served you first, and you only act kindly and graciously to those who act kindly and graciously to, those, to, to you first, you're, you're nothing more to me than the tax collectors and the Gentiles. You, you may wrap it up in slightly more righteous packaging, but at the end of the day, you're the same thing. There's no difference in you. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Are you starting to see why, Je- why whenever Jesus opened his mouth, the more he talked, the more the religious leaders of his day wanted to just outright murder him? They wanted to shut him up permanently. So what does Jesus say next in verse 48? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hey guys, based on everything else we've seen in Jesus' sermon so far, do you think he actually, like honestly, really, truthfully means 
We have to be perfect. Yeah, I think he does. And that's a problem for us, isn't it? Because what a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. And Well, Jesus has gone out of his way both last week and this week to show us that our hearts are prone to selfishness and our hearts are prone to retaliation and our hearts are prone to vindictiveness. That's what we always chase after and lean towards and want desperately even if we don't talk about it out loud. If perfection is what's required, then I am in a load of trouble because perfection is impossible for me. We've got this cultural maxim in our day, well, nobody's perfect. That's true, but it also drives me bonkers. Because whenever I hear that, it's because we're using it to slough off our failures and slough off uh, distraction away from uh, the attention away from our insecurities and our inabilities. And we use it to move the goalposts of God's standard of holiness back to the lowest common denominator of our cultural failure. It drives me crazy when I hear that. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, you're right. And that's a gigantic problem up, compared up against a holy, flawless, eternally perfect judge. The Bible clearly teaches that the imperfection of people is a gigantic problem for people. That the perfect judge of all the earth not only judges our actions by his own perfection, but also our motives by his own perfection. He sees what's really inside of you. And so even if I could manage to find the strength and the resolve to fake my way through it for a little bit, even in that moment on my best day, he still sees right through me. He's not fooled. To have perfection as the standard is a gigantic problem for Stephen. But it's not a problem for Jesus. The perfection that is impossible for me is not impossible for him. And so he is the only one, only one who ever perfectly loved and obeyed the Father. And his death on the cross is a death unlike any death in all of human history because he's the only one who didn't actually deserve to die. Like, you and me, like, we, we've sinned. Romans 6.3 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And so, because of our sin, we deserve to die. Our life is owed. But Jesus, no, he, he didn't. He, he didn't deserve to die. Unlike anybody else in history, his is the only death that wasn't deserved. And yet, he came. He died as a sinless substitute. He died on the cross for the punishment of others' sin that he took upon himself and called his own. My sin and your sin if you know him. He paid the debt of others in full and those others in faith come to him as Lord and they are reconciled to him forever. So the perfection that is necessary is actually a perfection that is provided by him. He fulfills it For us. In other words, he came to effectually love his enemies. And so even though our selfish and retaliatory and vindictive hearts war against us, because of his perfect righteousness, the Bible teaches that he is pleased with us. 
pleased with us and that he is working to make us look more and more and more and more like him. He is working in us today to get us ready for the eternal fulfillment of his kingdom. The already but not yet kingdom continues to roll forth. I don't know about you though, I'm willing and ready and excited to see its fulfillment. But what about today? How do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God today. And I think you do that by trusting and working. Those of you who are in Les's small group class are working through the book of James. This is the theme of the book of James, if you want a cheat sheet for this morning. Trusting and working. You trust in his finished work and work in his finished work. That seems counterintuitive and contradictory. It's not. You trust in his finished work and you get busy looking more and more and more like your king. Are you growing more and more into looking like your upside down king? Are you longing more and more for the full realization of his upside down kingdom? I think we also, though, respond by sharing this completely countercultural message of Jesus with others. I think that's the appropriate response to this. Because, listen, isn't the world mesmerized by the act of emptying ourselves and serving others? It's not like they see it all that often. Put it on display and watch how impressed people are with that story. And whenever a good writer plugs that into a narrative somewhere, don't we just absolutely love that story? Maybe that's been built into us by a creator and a designer who's got bigger plans than just those stories. Who is God putting you, putting in your path this week that needs to, a little taste of the already but not yet? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of leaders up front here to talk and pray with you this morning if that would serve you today. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. But you can respond to God's word too. And you do that by meeting Jesus. By repenting of your sin and trusting him alone as Lord. And so I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And I'll be down here to talk if you want to talk about it. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. God, the more you talk, the more my world turns upside down. The more you unfold about the realities of your kingdom, the more more far away I feel sometimes. My world doesn't tend to operate that way, and I know my heart doesn't tend to want those things, but you are making all things new, and you are calling us to yourself, and you are changing us from the inside out because what a man is will be the chief influence in what a man does. And so for those who belong to you, you give us new hearts that do want your kingdom and do begin to think like the way your kingdom thinks and do begin to love the things that are valued most in your kingdom. God, we can't white-knuckle our way into that. We need to be changed by you. And so we ask that you do that this morning. Continue to change us. We'll, we'll put in our work, but that's ultimately something you're going to have to do. And we'll position ourselves and discipline ourselves, but if you don't work, we're in trouble. Help us begin to live in an otherworldly way today.
Help us to put your kingdom on display to a world that isn't going to really understand how to categorize it. Whether that brings persecution or that brings evangelism or that brings whatever, I think you'll be glorified. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known to them? Would you save people today? Would you call people and invite them into your kingdom? In your name we pray. Amen.